God's word with us this morning. From First Peter chapter 4, I'm reading verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing has happened. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Thank you for standing while we read. You may be seated. And uh, before I launch into an explanation of this text, I want to just offer this caveat. I'm thinking in light of recent events, particularly in Afghanistan, that if I were somehow called to preach to a group of huddled, nervous, scared saints somewhere in Afghanistan, fearful of what the outcome might be under the current rule of the Taliban, I may not choose this text, and I may not call it reasons to rejoice when life hurts. I've been thinking a lot about that this week as I thought about this sermon, and I think there would be a right time to preach this text in that circumstance. I don't know if it would be the first text I would preach. But it's different for us here. We're not in that circumstance right now, and even if things would change in your life or mine, this is a text that needs to become for us something of an anchor for us, and a source of consolation and encouragement. All of you, I know, have at one time or another suffered some hardship, experienced grief of one sort or another, and if it hasn't been recent, it'll probably come and hit you again very soon, maybe. I don't know. I'm not the predictor or prognosticator of those things. God wills, and we live according to his will. But I just, I just thought it would be appropriate to bring this subject in light of what our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and Libya and Syria and North Korea and many places on the face of this globe are experiencing right now could very easily be be in the midst of horrific trials uh, only for for the cause of their faith in Jesus Christ. So if we could just pray for our brothers and sisters this morning, I think it'd be good. Father, you are the Lord. You are the God of, of all creation. You superintend and cause your purposes to come to pass in every moment, in every place, for all time, for all people. Lord, we look to you this morning, and we plead with you for the sake of our brothers and sisters, who may very well be suffering at this moment in ways that we cannot even imagine, wrap our minds around. 
and maybe they couldn't even imagine it before these events began to happen in their lives, but Lord, they're there, and they need you, and I pray that you would be the God of all comfort who comforts us, them, in all of our tribulations, so that we may also be able to offer a bit of consolation to those who are similarly tested. Lord, I pray that you would just preserve your word. And in the midst of these sufferings, I pray that the gospel would prosper, that souls would come to Jesus, and that there would be a powerful impact for the kingdom as a result of these things worldwide. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I think it's safe to say that nobody in this room uh, just really joyfully anticipates trials or suffering. There are people that enjoy suffering. There's a clinical name for them. We won't go into that this morning, but it's not normal. And uh, on the other hand, can you imagine a life without pain? I just uh, recently finished reading a book by Dr. Paul Brand called The Gift of Pain. It was originally published in 1993 under the title, Pain, The Gift Nobody Wants. And Dr. Paul Brand was a man, that that book is basically an autobiographical journey of his his time uh, where he was born in India, in in the primitive hills of South India, and grew up as a missionary kid, and then later went to England, later to the United States, and became a prominent surgeon who did extensive work with leprosy. And one of the things that he discovered, one of the game changers that, that really is tied to his name, he discovered the fact that when, when lep- people with leprosy lose their fingers and their hands and their feet and other appendages, uh, it was always for generations assumed that this was caused by the disease itself. What he discovered was that it actually wasn't caused by the disease itself, but it was caused by the fact that the 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 leprosy bacteria that invades their body cuts off or destroys the nerve endings in these extremities so that they don't experience pain. And the reason these, these bones deteriorate and appendages fall off eventually is because injuries are unnoticed and untreated because they don't feel them. And so he spent years trying to re-educate people with this disease to pay attention to their injuries and get help for their injuries because painlessness was their curse. God has designed the human body in an amazing way such that when we encounter danger, say, come close to a flame with our fingers, we immediately draw back. Well, the reason we do is because there's, there's nerve endings in our fingers that sense, sense heat, extreme heat. And those, those nerve endings send a signal through our cortex up to our brain, and, and it's translated, and in a, in, in a fraction of a second, the brain sends reactions codes to us to, to tell our muscles what to do in, in the response to that pain. And if those suddenly went away, we would be in a heap of trouble. We'd be in a world of hurt in a different sort of a way. And what Paul Brand came to, came to realize after treating people with this disease for years was that pain is really one of the great gifts of God. That pain is a necessary part of our existence, one of his most precious gifts. 
Well, pain, physical pain, is not the only kind of pain that we experience. There is emotional suffering, which may be even more excruciating at times than first-degree burns because it can persist for years, for decades. It can persist for a long, long time. And it can come for various reasons. Parents who watch their children walk away from the faith. I grieve for Dr. John Piper and his wife, Noelle. John Piper has given his life to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. to to promote global evangelism, to bring people into an understanding of the great truths of God Almighty and his saving graces. And then at at the end of his lifetime and ministry to see his son become a TikTok sensation, mocking the very beliefs and faith system that he has worked all his life to promote and to teach. There has got to be enormous pain in those parents' souls, watching a loved one suffer a debilitating disease, watch that disease begin to grip their bodies, maybe take away their strength, sap their strength, and eventually take away their life. And we we stand beside them helplessly watching this happen. It's a painful thing. Christians, as we've already mentioned already, around the world suffering excruciating pain and persecution because of their faith. All of you have suffered in one way or another. Some excruciatingly so, I'm sure. Pain is not something Christians long for. But pain is something that Christians need to come to, to embrace as valuable and as a gift that God has graciously given to us to detect problems, to detect areas in our life that are have run amok or have become discombobulated in one way or another. But you know, we respond to pain in different ways. Respond to different kinds of pain in different ways. Maybe if you put your finger in a flame and you react to that and you say, oh, that hurts, we'd say that kind of hurt is good. I I embrace that kind of hurt. But if your child goes into rebellion and, and just seems to have abandoned the faith and you agonize over this day after day, maybe your cry to God is not, thank you, Lord, for this pain, but it's, Lord, when is this pain going to go away? I don't like this pain. I can't embrace this pain. I I, I don't enjoy this pain at all. Maybe persecution for belief in Jesus. That might be a pain that we experience someday. None of us will probably vote for it. Cancer? No, I don't want that kind of pain. So how can any of these pains have value? I think Peter wrote this entire letter of 1 Peter to answer that question. And by the way, he lived it. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and others were arrested. They were beaten. They were commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus. And in verse 41 it says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing what? That they were freed? No, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You know, Paul and others of the apostles experienced the same, beaten, thrown in prison in Philippi. Remember Acts chapter 16? And at midnight, after they had been unjustly charged, illegally beaten, and illegally incarcerated, and by the way, prisons weren't like they are today in that day. They were cold, deep, dark, dank, rat-infested, horrible environments. And here they are in that situation as Roman citizens illegally put there at midnight. They were praising God and singing in such a way that all the prisoners heard them. Are these responses normal or are they 
phenomenal? Are they just like super inordinary? Well, as we suffer various trials, we want to respond like Peter, don't we? We want to think that in a, in, a, in a horrific time of suffering that we might respond with the same grace as Paul and Silas did in that Philippian jail. We want to be able to suffer like these people that Peter is writing to in this epistle. If you go back to chapter 1, he talks about the, the grand salvation that they've been granted by the incredible mercies of God. And God has, has, has caused them to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to, a, to, a, to an inheritance that is imperishable and, and unfading, kept in heaven for them. He, he, he describes this great salvation. He says, however, though, now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So he's talking about the fact that they have this great salvation that they rejoice in. They're being grieved by various trials, and we don't know exactly what those various trials are. But then he says to those who are presently grieving, they haven't seen Jesus, but they love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and here's the part that just blows us away, and you are rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, how do suffering Christians in the first century, probably experiencing persecution for their faith, how do they rejoice with an inexpressible joy? That's a joy that exceeds all the normal joys. All the joys of an amusement park, all the joys of a brand new car, all the joys of Christmas for kids, all these joys that we, we think of as being exquisite joys, this blows them all away. How in the world can that happen? As we suffer these trials, we want to be able to respond like them. So let's go to our text and see if we can glean some reasons to rejoice when life falls apart, when life hurts. Let me go back and read verses 12 and 13 again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Is Peter actually saying that suffering is normal? It's a normal part of life. The answer to that is, yes, he is. Listen, listen to what he says. Beloved, do not be surprised as though something strange is happening. We, we could turn that phrase upside down. We could, we could turn it inside out and state it positively and say something like this. Beloved, anticipate. Don't be surprised, but anticipate fiery trials when they come to test you, as something normal, not, not strange, but something normal was happening to you, because it is. Peter's not just saying to these people, come on, get over it, buck up, you know, handle it, do life. He's telling his readers that suffering is something to be expected. It's part of the nature of being a Christ follower. It's part of living as a Christian in a fallen world. But he says, don't let these sufferings rob you of your joy. Let them fuel your joy. Let them put fuel to the fire of joy, so to speak, 
what I think he's trying to say. Because God is actually at work in you in these things. Throughout this entire letter, Peter is telling us that when we face various trials, he's telling us how to think. Really, he's telling us repeatedly throughout this letter, he's talking about the mind and what the mind should be. Uh, I wish we had time to go into that, but we don't this morning. But he's telling us how to think when we experience various trials, chapter 1, verse 6, suffering unjustly, chapter 2, verse 19, suffering for righteousness, 314, uh, uh, suffering or fiery trials in our text this morning, verse 12. So I think in our text, what he's doing is, as he comes to this part of the letter, he's giving them reasons to rejoice or how to think about these trials in a victorious way. <clears throat> I'm just a, <clears throat> just a bit of a note. He's talking in this text, in, in, our, in our paragraph here, <clears throat> excuse me, about trials that seem to be coming as a result of persecution because of their faith. But he's not talking about, uh, he's not limiting it to that. Because if you go back to chapter 1 again, verse 6, he, he described them as various trials. And I think what those various trials could include all kinds of trouble that Christians experience in their maturing process. God is sovereign. He manages all the trials, all the suffering in our path, disease, the job loss, the severed relationships, the persecution, all of these are used by God for our good. The principle is the same. So, Pastor Zach read James chapter 1, verse 3, where James says, Beloved, count it a thing of all joy when you embrace various trials. You know, that makes no sense at all to us, except for one thing, God. The only reason anyone on this planet could embrace suffering with joy, not bring it on joy, but but embrace suffering with joy in the midst of pain is because of God. So the point of our text is don't don't be shocked by your sufferings, rejoice in them. And here's what you need to know. Four truths I'm going to pull out of this text. You could probably mine out a few more, but I'm going to do four truths to help you rejoice in suffering. And don't look at the clock and get nervous because I'm just starting my outline. I'm going to deal with these rather quickly. One, suffering refines your faith. The rejoicing that Peter is referring to in this text, in this text is not, a again, a leaping, waving white, white handkerchiefs and just jumping up and down and and, and doing cartwheels in the aisles. It's not that kind of joy. It is an inner, quiet joy in the knowledge that God is working his glorious purposes, fitting us for service today and for glory for eternity. And he does this by improving, by refining our faith. When Peter speaks about fiery trials in verse 12, I'm not sure he's just talking about life-threatening, huge, traumatic kinds of trials. But I think he's talking about trials that are refining, trials that have to do with purifying our faith. Um, He uses the same term here as he does in chapter 1 when he speaks of, and this you you rejoice, though now for a little while if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And then he goes on to describe them, and he says... um, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes when it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the 
revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's, he's talking about trials that, that refine, trials that purify our faith, trials that stretch us and, and make us better and make our faith go deeper and more robust. And he uses the same term here. And if I had time, I, I'd bring out the comparisons between these two texts that I think uh, brings these two in alignment as far as the, the thought on refining our faith is concerned. In both contexts, there is a refining test, tested by fire here, fiery trial. Uh, both uh, the immediate and both, both of these texts speak of an immediate benefit and an eschatological benefit. The immediate benefit is your faith is perfected. The fiery trials come upon you to test you. Like gold in a furnace, our faith is tested so that only the genuine aspects of faith remain. The eschatological effect, verse Chapter 1, verse 7, your tested faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In our text, verse 13, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So there's something that's immediately happening to us in terms of our faith. Our faith is being purified. All that doesn't belong to faith is being burned away like all that doesn't belong to gold is burned off. All that dross is removed by the refining fire. Similarly, our faith is being purified as we go through hard times, grievous trials. And we are able then to rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Believing in Jesus with genuine tested faith is the way we are able to rejoice in those trials. Go down to verse 8 again of chapter 1 when he says, uh, Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. That's a faith issue. He's identifying Faith as the crux, as the, the reason for which they are able to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Their faith was tested. And on the basis of that testing, as a result of that testing, they were able to believe in Jesus with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So I think it's true that suffering refines our faith releasing in us, in our inner beings, an inexpressible joy. And that's a reason to rejoice in suffering. But number two, suffering aligns you with Jesus. Verses 13 through 16, But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, in his name you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Don't let anybody suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. But if you suffer as a Christian, okay, so he's, he's talking about suffering as a result, of, or suffering bringing us into a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. The letter was written to suffering saints to inform their minds how to find joy in their suffering. And it's interesting that in this letter in which he's writing to, to saints, to help them embrace suffering, that he speaks of Christ's suffering in every single one of these chapters. A dozen times in this book, he refers to Christ's suffering also. He wants us to remember, I think, in the context, that Christ suffered for our sins in order to bring us to God, not just to cleanse us, to bring us into a tight relationship with God. In other words... There is an incalculable value to suffering. Exhibit A, Jesus Christ. Think of Jesus. Think of the horrific sufferings that he experienced. The agonies of Gethsemane. The agonies of Calvary. 
Okay? We can't even get our minds to process the intensity of Christ's suffering, not just physical. Thousands of human beings were crucified on crosses, many nobly. Jesus did the same, but the intensity of his suffering was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the ultimate lament prayer in all of human history. Jesus suffered enormously. And the effect of that suffering has been to bring you and I and millions of others on this globe throughout time in a tight relationship with God for all eternity. There is an incalculable value to suffering. Chapter 1, verse 3, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus died, that's suffering. Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ, like that as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, on a cross. You share in his sufferings, Peter says in 4.13. Peter calls himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Suffering, suffering, suffering. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sufferer. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53 says it eloquently that he suffered. So suffering is not categorically bad. We can't just say all suffering is bad. If we do, we've just dismissed the ultimate blessing the human race in Jesus Christ. It can be unfathomably good, but also I think he wants us to know by juxtaposing these two, the sufferings of Jesus and our sufferings, he wants us to know that when we suffer, we share in his sufferings. We identify with him. We become close and intimate. Who doesn't, as a Christian, want to, have experience, want to experience intimacy with Jesus Christ? King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of all mankind who come to him by faith. Verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Peter seems to be saying a couple things there. One, I think he's saying keep on rejoicing because the sufferings you encounter prove your union with Christ. It's not just that we suffer, but the way we suffer. This is not the fact of our suffering, but it's the manner in which we suffer. If we suffer believingly, and if we suffer in a way that brings glory to God, expressing our faith like that last song we sang this morning, in fact, really all the songs we sang this morning, if we are able to express our faith and our confidence and our hope in God in the midst of our suffering, we bring glory to God, and we are, we are in the process being brought into greater union with him. Number two, the measure of our present joy determines the degree of our future joy at the glory of Jesus Christ. He says, insofar, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. To the degree that you suffer, you rejoice, you will be able, to the degree that you suffer nobly or righteously or in a godly way, you will be able to rejoice. So if we don't stand with Christ now and bear his reproach today, if we don't suffer in a way that brings glory to God now, we will not be prepared to rejoice with ecstatic joy when Jesus Christ comes again. What Christian does not want to see that day as the day of absolute ecstasy in the presence of Jesus Christ? Suffering brings us together. Joseph Song 
the Romanian pastor who was imprisoned multiple times in the days leading up to the revolution in Romania. And he said this as he spoke following that season, the union with Christ is the most beautiful subject in the Christian life. It means that I am not a lone fighter here. I am an extension of Jesus Christ. When I was beaten in Romania, he suffered in my body. It was not my sufferings. I only had the honor to share in his sufferings. I would suggest to you that any and all share that we now experience, and in all participation that we now experience in the sufferings of Christ, prepares us for a future joy that simply cannot be described. If the tested genuineness of our faith enables us to believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible joy, and our sufferings in Christ, our, our, our sharing in Christ's sufferings qualifies us to rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, verse 13, That is, then, a joy now and a joy later. In chapter 1, we're talking about present joy. They are now, right now, at that moment, they were were experiencing joy that was inexpressible and filled with glory. And here in our text, he's talking about a joy that we will experience at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Joy now, joy later. One final note on this. Not only do we share in Christ's sufferings, he shares in ours. Let me give you an illustration of that. Remember Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus to arrest and persecute Christians, to imprison and probably kill Christians, met Jesus on that road. And Jesus spoke to him, and what did he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Jesus was glorified. He had died. He had resurrected. He had ascended to heaven. And Jesus says, you are persecuting me. In what sense was Saul persecuting Jesus, who was in heaven? He was persecuting him when he persecuted Christ's children. Because Jesus suffered when we suffered. He identifies with us. We identify with him. That is a wonderful intimacy that suffering brings us into. Thirdly, suffering comes with spiritual power, a spiritual power that we don't experience in any other way, I would suggest. In verse 13, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Another way to read or translate that would be, if you are, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you, got, you, you can be happy. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Well, that's an interesting phrase. The kind of suffering these saints might encounter, and the intense afflictions so many are experiencing in other parts of the world right now may cause us to say, you know, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could faithfully glorify God and trust in him and, and maintain my hope in God in the midst of that kind of persecution. I don't know if I was, if I was face-to-face with a, with a Glock 9 millimeter in the hand of a police officer who's, who's arresting me for my faith in Jesus Christ, I'm not sure that I would say, bring it on. I'm not denying my faith. I don't know if I can do that. You know what? You can't. And neither could those who have, but for one thing. In that moment of suffering and not before, Peter says, 
the spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. Haven't been there. Haven't experienced it in the intensity that he's talking about. Something, but, but, but I do know this. I think what Peter is saying is that suffering is not something we handle all by ourselves. Suffering for the name of Christ or suffering in any context that is, is, is mitigated, it's, it's changed, it's transformed by the Spirit of God in a special presence. I think this is illustrated for us very tangibly in Daniel chapter 3. Three young Hebrew men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, commonly referred to as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were brought before Nebuchadnezzar because they refused to bow down and worship the image that he had put up. He threatened them with a fiery furnace. They said, no, we don't have to hold a press conference or, or, or a consult, consultation here. We're, we're not going to bow down to that image. We will not disobey the Lord our God. So they threw him in the furnace. And what Nebuchadnezzar saw was not three men consumed immediately by the flames like the soldiers who threw them in, but instead three men unbound, walking around, and a fourth one like unto the son of the gods. I don't know how this works. I don't know in what way persecuted saints are experiencing the spirit of glory and of God resting upon them. But I would suggest to you that God does not give us anything we cannot handle by the grace which he will supply. He will not cause us to be tested, Paul says, beyond our ability to withstand. But will with that test make a way to escape He will make a provision for us. And I don't think that means that the pain is all gone. I think when people were burned at the stake for their faith in Jesus Christ, it hurt. But it was doable because the spirit of glory and of God rested on them. And he will for us as well. The God who promised his children, I'll go with you through the fire. I'll be with you in the flood. I'll go through the valley of the shadow of death with you. I'll be there for you. He did, he will do just as he promised. Tim Keller says it this way in the cross, Jesus walked into the ultimate furnace. The cross for Jesus was the ultimate furnace for us so that he could remove all doubt that he will also walk into our lesser furnaces with us. I love that statement. In the cross, Jesus walked into the ultimate furnace for us to give us every reason to believe that he will also walk in into the lesser furnaces, our lesser furnaces of affliction with us. The glory, the spirit of glory and of God will rest upon you in that time. What does it look like? How does it feel? How does it help? Not for you to know today. It's not for us to know right now. But because God is the infinitely innovative pain management specialist, mark it down. When you are suffering according to God's will, his pain management grace will be there and you will know it. Will it still hurt? Yes. Will you have grace to endure with inexplicable joy? Yes, again. And by the way, I think you heard me say, when we 
our suffering according to God's will. Paul, or Peter makes it very clear that we are not to, to bring on suffering by our disobedience, by our sin. God doesn't promise to send the spirit of glory and of grace upon us when we suffer for our own stupidity or suffer for our own rebellion. That, re, that suffering is meant to draw us back into intimate fellowship so that we can experience the greater intensity of suffering with the spirit of God, glory and of grace and of God resting upon us. When our suffering is great, so will be our consolation from the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our tribulation, and it will be sweet and rejoiceable. Samuel Rutherford, a 17th century Scottish pastor, said, the great king keeps his finest wine in the cellar of affliction. He does not bring it out to serve with chips on a sunny afternoon. He keeps it for extremities, for extreme situations. So having the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you is a timely reason to rejoice in suffering. But there's more. Suffering, number four, is God's will for you. Now, when we say something is God's will, what are we saying? That God intentionally programs it into your experience by his sweet providence, by his good and holy sovereign providence. If something is God's will, what else can we say about it? We can say it is good. It is for our benefit. It is is holiness building. It has the effect of sanctification. Peter implied in verse 12, don't be surprised. Why should we not be surprised? We shouldn't be shocked that God does things that have ultimately great purposes. And when God brings these things into our lives, we shouldn't be shaking our heads and say, what went wrong? Did God vacate his throne? Is God, is God sleeping? Is God preoccupied with some other part of the universe and not paying attention? Does he know that I'm suffering? Yes. Did he will that suffering? Yes. Does he have grand and holy purposes in that suffering? Yes. He's already made that point. Repeatedly, and he does so several times in the text. Of the many references to intent uh, to, to God's purposes in suffering, uh, let me just read two of them. Chapter two, verse fifteen. This is the will of God that by doing good you should be put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That is, that your good works will silence the rage of your enemies against you. It's the will of God. Chapter three, verse seventeen. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In fact, in chapter 1, when he said, though now, for a little while, if necessary. What is the necessity of suffering? The necessity of suffering is in the intention and the mind of God. God necessitates our suffering. He's the one who makes them necessary because our, our faith needs refining. It needs to be strengthened. Most of us fail to embrace the necessity of our suffering In the midst of a hurt, we very seldom hear ourselves saying, boy, I really needed that. I don't know about you, but I I can't remember a time when I said that in the midst of suffering. But just as God had divine and holy purposes in the sufferings of his son, Jesus Christ, so also he has got grand and holy purposes in the sufferings that he allows us to encounter and embrace. What is that purpose? Again, I say, I don't know. We may never know specifically. We know generally. Ecclesiastes 3.15, whatever God does, it shall be forever. 
Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. But God does it that, there's the word that signals purpose. God does it for this reason, that men should fear before him. That, 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 that we would be more intense in our, in our loving subjection and our holy awe of him. Psalm 119, verse 71, it's good that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes, that I might go deeper into your word and understand the beauty of all that you have revealed. 2 Corinthians 12, remember Paul and his thorn in the flesh? Three times he aggressively spent long seasons begging God to remove this thing from him. God said to him, my grace is all you need. Just accept my grace. And Paul said as a result, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Was he talking about the spirit of glory and of God resting upon him? I don't know, but he was talking about the power of Christ in some way resting upon him as a result of the refining of his faith. Consider verse 17. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. There's a necessity factor. It's time. There's a need for for judgment to begin at the household of God. And and the proverbial statement later on is, if, if if, if, if the righteous is brought to the fullness of his salvation, or if the righteous uh, is scarcely saved, what will become of the, of the ungodly and the sinner? He's saying, in essence, that if righteousness is brought to fullness with difficulty through suffering, then what will become of the ungodly? If God is bringing judgment, hardship, suffering, affliction, grief through, in various ways on, in this world, he's doing it for two purposes, for two sets of people. For the believers, he's bringing this refining suffering to to improve and to deepen our faith and to draw us into a greater relationship with him so that when he is revealed, we might have ecstatic joy in his presence and even experience some of that today. Uh, But there's a different reason that he's bringing judgment sweeping from one end of this globe to the other through this world, and that is to punish sin. And that is an eternal grief that nobody wants to experience. These judgments are proof of his love for us. When the Lord loves, he chastens. So we find joy in loving chastisement, but there is no such hope for the unbeliever. There will be no sin in heaven. God took all of ours and put it on Jesus Christ and judged it there when he was on the cross. But those who still carry their sins will suffer the eternal punishment that all sin deserves. Folks, when we talk about suffering, when we talk about the way we suffer and the reasons we suffer and the reasons unbelievers suffer, it ought to cause a chill to go up and down our spine and renew our energy and our, our, our resolve to share this wonderful gospel with those who suffer without hope. By way of conclusion, verse 19, therefore, he says, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I think this is is Peter's conclusion. It may be his, his summary statement for the entire letter. Two actions, he says. Entrust your souls to God. And two, keep doing good. Entrust your soul to God. In the midst of your grief, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of that horrific trial, or even mediocre trial, whatever it is, 
and trust your souls to God. Give your life over to God again and keep doing good. Don't let suffering change the trajectory of your life. It is a beautiful faith, a faith rarefied by sufferings that entrusts our souls to God in in crisis. It is a working faith that keeps on doing good when doing good may well be the very reason that brought on the suffering. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 17, he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. These people may have been suffering because of the things that we're doing that were good. It, it may be even a, a life of holiness that provokes your suffering. But a rarefied faith, purified by these trials, not only keeps on trusting and trusting to God, but keeps on doing good in spite of the fact that it may be that which caused their suffering. So keep on entrusting your souls to a faithful creator, the ultimate sovereign. This is what Jesus did himself. In chapter 2, verse 23, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In fact, Peter used the same word in our text as Jesus spoke from the cross when he said, Father, into your hands I commit, I entrust my spirit. I give over to you my very life. This is what Peter is saying we need to do in the midst of our suffering. So think about it. When you suffer as a Christian, your faith is refined for a fuller knowledge and enjoyment of Christ. You, number two, enter a sweet fellowship with Christ, who also suffered and suffered purposely at the will of God. Three, you enjoy the nurturing help of the spirit of glory and of God resting upon you in a way that I can't explain to you today and you can't explain to me me today because we haven't experienced it yet in in the way that we're going to in the next trial. You may have experienced it already in some trial you've been through, but it'll be different, it'll be unique, it'll be specially branded for the next trial that you have. And fourthly, you know that God's hidden but glorious will is being worked out in your life through every trial and grief you embrace. So in all of this, we need to keep entrusting our soul to a creator, the God who made us, the God whose purposes are being affected in every moment of our, of our daily journey, who is faithful, who, is, who sovereignly orders all things, including the length and the intensity of every one of our griefs. Peter is calling Christians to a higher view of suffering than our world can even imagine. The question is, will you answer that call? Will you answer the call to embrace suffering in the way that he is explaining to us today and maybe for the purposes that he explains us today? We can only do that as we are sinking our roots deep into the soil of God's word and strengthening our faith, which is being made even more robust through the experiences of grief that we are encountering as we continue in this journey of spiritual growth for the glory of God. Now, this may seem a strange text to bring an invitation to salvation. Come, suffer with Jesus and Jesus' people. 
Shall we sing just as I am without one plea? Come on, all of you that want to embrace suffering for the cause of Jesus, stand and come with me this morning. No, I'm not sure that that's the most profound text that we would use for a salvation message, but listen again to verse 17. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? For the believer, like Job, the latter end of Job was greater than the beginning. Job was refined. Job suffered inordinately. Job suffered incredibly, beyond what we can even imagine. But he was the better man at the end of the book than he was at the beginning of the book. For the unbeliever, the latter end is infinitely worse. In fact, that's what Asaph discovered in Psalm 73 when he was whining about why do the righteous suffer and the, and the heathen prosper. He went to the temple. He said, I think it's verse 17. Then I understood their end. Right now, they may have it great, and I may, and I may be hurting. But, but when you consider their end, which is exactly what Peter is saying, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The unbeliever, that latter end is infinitely worse than whatever their present might be. And Jesus came to bring us from unbelief to belief through the power of the cross and the gift of faith. And if that's what faith has done for us, then it's worth every experience of suffering to purify that faith, and it's worth every discipline of our lives to strengthen that faith by being in the word of God and responding believingly to all that he says to us. And then share that faith with those whose latter end at this moment is not as glorious as yours. Father, I pray that you help us to respond to this text in a believing sort of a way. None of us are going to jump up and run out of this room just rejoicing at the prospect of another round of suffering. And when it happens... We probably will not be doing cartwheels in the parking lot and telling everybody about how glorious it is to suffer. But may we, with quiet faith, embrace these sufferings knowing that you are in the process rarefying our faith, that you are drawing us into an intimate relationship with your son Jesus, that you are promising to send upon us the spirit of glory and of God that will rest upon us a witness that we cannot even imagine. And that for those reasons, and maybe many, many more, it is all within the purposes and will that you have for us. So I pray that we'd find them to be, in the most illogical sense of the term, a gift. Many times, the gospel turns logic on its head and causes things to be true that seem false to the world, to be good, but to the world seems evil but you have made them good by the power of the cross and by the gift of faith. So bless us, we pray, and respond in Jesus' name.